It is good to be with you all this morning. Good to see you uh, spread out and around the area in the sunshine. I noticed uh, something. I'll, I'll throw this out there, a suggestion. If you want to sit in a leather power, maybe leather or cloth seat next week that, that has power, uh, you can get here early. I'm going to point you out, bud. Everybody say hi to bud in his car over there. He's in his, he's in his seat. He's got the prime spot. So maybe you can beat him next week and, and sit there in your car and, and just kind of uh, hear everything. So it looks pretty cozy. Uh, you, you won't be in the camera either if you're there. I don't really want to be in the camera today. So where do I go if I don't want to be in the camera? I don't, I don't have a choice today, do I? Anyway, it is good to see you. It is good to be together. And I'm looking forward to uh, saying hello to many of you after the service today, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper and a variety of things. We are in the Beatitudes. I hope you have your Bible open, or if you didn't bring a Bible today, I'd encourage you right now to grab your phone, and uh, you can just Google Matthew 5, and, and you'll have the passage right in front of you, and that will help you to follow along today, and for God to speak to you through his word, and not only through the preaching of the word, but through you looking at the word itself. So for those of you that weren't here last week, we, we looked at the first of the two Beatitudes, and we're going to cover the next two this morning. And one of the things that God has impressed upon me these last couple weeks as I have been preparing and studying and, and, and praying over this passage is how radically different God's blessing is. In this Sermon on the Mount, in these Beatitudes, how radically different God's blessing is than the idea of blessing that is dominant in our culture and in our world. The kingdom of God and, and the, the world's kingdom are so, so different. In fact, they're close to being completely opposite when it comes to blessing. And so what I said last week, I want to repeat and say again today, and that is, I believe that it is God's will for you, for me to be blessed this Christmas season, this crazy 2020 Christmas season. I believe it is God's will for you and me to be blessed. And as I read his word and pray over his word, I am increasingly seeing how different his blessing is than what the culture and what the influences on me from the world have understood his blessing to be. His blessing doesn't involve power or beauty or fame, but it involves things like mourning. We saw that last week with a, with a you, mourning with a you. It involves things like persecution that we're going to look at in a future week. His blessing does not involve power or beauty or fame. As we journey through the Beatitudes this Christmas season, this Christmas on the Mount, as we are calling it, I want to remind you that we are not to select these Beatitudes a la carte. That it is an eight-course meal. There are eight Beatitudes, and even though we're just doing a couple each week, that they are not to be chosen individually. D.A. Carson writes this, he says it would be wrong to suppose that Matthew's Beatitudes are, are for different groups of people 
or that we have the right to half the blessings if we determine to pursue four out of the eight. They are a unity and describe the norm for the Messiah's people. These Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10, are the norm for God's people. How we are to live, how we are to be blessed. I don't know if you've um, heard of a, a place called Pick Apart. Have you heard of Have you heard of this place, Pick Apart? Anybody? Somebody? Okay, there's at least two or three here. For those of you that haven't heard of this place, Pick Apart, it's like a junkyard, okay? Cars that are no longer, as a whole, valuable. They're, they're toast. They're, they're junk. But you go to Pick Apart because inside that car that is junk, there's some really good parts. And so you go in there and you pay the money and you take out the one part that you need and you leave the junk car there. We are not to have a pick-apart kind of mentality when we come to the Beatitudes. We cannot say, yes, I'm very happy to be blessed and merciful, but I am not happy to be blessed and mourn. I am not happy to be blessed and persecuted. It is a unit, and we must embrace this message in its whole We can't say, I'll take the mercy, but I'll skip the mourning. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, the Sermon on the Mount, if I may use such a comparison, is like a great musical composition, a symphony, if you like. Now, the whole is greater than a collection of the parts, and we must never lose sight of this wholeness. I want to say that there is a progression in these Beatitudes, And let's just very briefly go back and look at the first two, which are verses three and four that we covered last week. They begin, verse three says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw last week that the foundation, the beginning point here is to empty me of myself. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that I need to lean on his own. I need to lean on him. And his ways and his leading and my default positions are not really that helpful. So help me to be poor in spirit that in and of myself, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, I'm spiritually bankrupt. So this is the beginning point. What I'm trying to show here is that there are connections between each of these beatitudes. And then the second one we saw, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are you and I when we mourn. This is one of the more counterintuitive uh, counterintuitive blessings. What does it mean? We're blessed if we mourn? For those of us that can remember last week, we saw, yes, we, we, we mourn. We, we are blessed when we mourn with those who mourn. We should look for those who are grieving and who, who are suffering in the body and those outside the body of Christ. And and when we enter into their condition and come alongside them and mourn with them, we are blessed. We should mourn over our own sinfulness and our own sins and our own uh, perilous things that we choose to do week in and week out. Blessed are Christ's followers when we mourn. So we see there are connections there First, we begin by emptying ourselves and then we mourn over our condition and we ask God to change us. 
My thesis is that for the Christ follower who is empowered by God, I mentioned this last week, that this global pandemic and all of its restrictions and all of its economic hardships that have come with it, they have nothing to do with you, have a bl- with you having a blessed Christmas season in 2020. I'm saying this based on the foundation of God's word. I'm not saying it lightly, or I'm not saying it without an understanding of how this cloud of COVID and all of the things that have come with it have impacted our lives. They have impacted us massively and have impacted us negatively. But nonetheless, I am saying that we are not cut off from his blessing, even with this COVID cloud among us. Even for the few of us for whom the virus has come into our bodies or the body of someone in our home, we are not cut off from his blessing. For those of you who have been hit economically through this COVID season, that that's how it has hit you. Let me just remind you that we have financial resources. We, the Cornerstone family, for one another when times are tough. And so part of the blessing of God this Christmas season might be to give to help someone else who is struggling because of of the economic consequences of COVID. Or maybe you are to be blessed by receiving some of those funds. We have funds to bless you and to bless your neighbors if they need that. What I'm saying, church, is that it is God's will for you and me to have a blessed Christmas season, even in this crazy year 2020. If you or someone you know has been hurt economically, needs help, you can see me after the service today, see someone on our deacon team after the service today. God's blessing is not dependent on whether we have this COVID cloud hanging over us or not. His blessing is upon those who are poor in spirit. His blessing is upon those who mourn. And his blessing is upon those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's dive into these next couple Beatitudes. Verse 5 is our next one. Look at it with me. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It is a strong statement that we will inherit the earth, the meek. But we have to begin with a difficulty with this word meek. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, this word meek has an overwhelmingly negative connotation in just the way that we use it in everyday language. And so if you look in a dictionary, there are a variety of meanings for this word meek. Let me read one of them with you. And this is the dominant way. I don't know about you, but this is the dominant way I think of when I think of the word meek. This definition in in the dictionary, deficient in spirit and courage. And then the dictionary gives an example of how you would use the word meek in that context. I don't care, came the meek reply. I don't care. I'm I'm not going to step up. I'm not going to get involved. And so we have in our minds, if you're like me, this idea of meekness being like somebody who's, who's lacking courage, somebody who's, who's not doing what they're supposed to do. 
Is anybody with me? Is that how you, is that how you, somebody say yes. That, 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 that's how I think of the word meek. Now, if you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, you know that words, almost every word has a variety of meanings, ha, has different meanings. And this particular meaning of the word meek is absolutely not the way we should understand it in verse five. This is not saying blessed is the person who is afraid to be courageous and timid and, and, and doesn't do what they're supposed to do. Who's deficient in spirit and courage. That is not what verse five means. So what is Jesus getting at when he says to his followers, to you and me this morning, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Well, let's talk for a moment about the, 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 uh, well, let me say this. I have, I have about a total of, uh, I have a total of six points this morning. So the first one, I've already said it, but let me say it another way. Meek is an overwhelmingly positive characteristic for the Christ follower. It is overwhelmingly positive. And so this word meek might be a challenge for us as we read it. And now we come to the inherit the earth part before I come back and and talk about what meek is. I've talked about what meek isn't so far. But it says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. One commentator says this. He says, the verb inherit often relates to entrance into the promised land. Entrance into the promised land ultimately became a pointer toward entrance into the new heaven and the new earth. So we could paraphrase verse five, blessed are the meek for they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. They will be in this glorious place where there is no death and no sin and no viruses and no broken families and no struggles and toil. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So at this point, some of you might be saying, if you're a critical person like me or a contrary person like me, sometimes when I'm listening to someone seek, so are you saying in order to go to heaven, in order to be in the new heavens and the new earth, the qualification is to be meek and I'm not meek and therefore I'm not in. We should not understand this sermon that way. We know that we come into the kingdom only by God's grace, by believing the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins and he rose on the third day. So to paraphrase what's going on in this sermon, it is saying that Christ followers are those who are meek or are longing to be meek and they will inherit the earth. The only person who should be discouraged when they read verse five is the person who says, I will not be meek. For the person who says, Lord, make me meek. We are in a good place. So I've said what meek isn't. I've talked about inheriting the kingdom, but what does it mean to be meek? So I've looked at more definitions of meek this week than you would like to hear. But I'm going to share one of them with you. The best one was from Matthew Henry. This dude, another one of my uh, dead friends. I have a lot of dead friends, people I've never met who lived a long time ago. He lived from 1662 to 1714. And I I looked in, in the Greek dictionaries. I looked in all kinds of places, but Matthew Henry describes what it means to be meek. So if you haven't been listening, tune in and listen to this definition, this explanation, this pastor shepherd describe 
what it means in verse 5, blessed are the meek. The meek are those who are gentle towards all men. Who can bear provocation without being inflamed by it. Are either silent or return a soft answer. And who can show their displeasure when there is occasion for it without being transported into any indecencies. Who can be cool when others are hot and in their patience keep possession of their own souls when they can scarcely keep possession of anything else. They are the meek who are rarely and hardly provoked, but quickly and easily pacified. And this is good. And we're just about done with his lengthy definition. He didn't call it his definition, but I'm calling it his definition. And who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one, having the rule of their own spirits. That's what it means to be meek. It is a relational dynamic. It means that you are gentle and lowly of spirit. It means that when you are in a situation where it would be of the flesh a place for you to be full of provocation, to be inflamed, to be angry, to lose it, that you don't, that you return a soft answer, that you're silent. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Greek word that is behind this word meek is the word praus. It's an adjective. It's used four times in the New Testament. If we had another hour, it would be very profitable to go. If I had another hour, it would be profitable to go through each of these four occurrences of this word in the New Testament. But I want to, in, in the consideration of time, just look at one of them. One of the occasions for this word that's translated meek one of the other uses of it in the New Testament, and it's a familiar passage. It's Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It's Jesus speaking. Let me read it to you in the King James. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Jesus said, I am meek. Other translations translate it gentle. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you and you'll find rest. This is one of the other three occasions where this word is used. And it's significant, church. I know some of you may not be tracking with me here, but listen to this. This is significant what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine about himself being meek, about himself being gentle and lowly is really important. One writer, his name is Dane Ortland. He writes this. He says, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, 
There's only one place. There is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Where Jesus tells us about what is at the core of his being. Now, if I had started out this sermon, many of you have read the Bible many, many times. I've read the Gospels many, many times. If I had started out this sermon with a question, what is the one place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his own heart? I can just tell you, honestly, I've read the passage many times. I wouldn't have known. I I, I wouldn't have known what to say. The one thing in all the New Testament that Jesus says about his own heart, what is it? Well, I just read it to you. Let me read it again in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, this time from the NASB. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. At the core of Jesus' identity during his earthly ministry, when he describes who he is in his heart, in the essence of who he is as a human being, he says, I am gentle, I am meek and humble in heart. Again, Ortland goes on. He writes this, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exacerbated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger. But open arms, open arms. The most natural posture for you and I to think about Jesus when we think about his heart and who he is, is a man who has his arms open, who wants to embrace you and love you and care for you and someone who is gentle and lowly. This is the only description of Jesus' heart in the New Testament. Ortland goes on. He says, if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. If we want to have a blessed Christmas season, if we want to have a blessed life, we will ask God to make us meek, gentle, lowly people. Second point, I've already said it, but to restate it, meek is the one and only thing that scripture tells us about the heart of Jesus. Now, to the critic Is this biblical? What he's saying is he exaggerating his point. Every pastor is exaggerate their point. They preach that point. They ignore other things. So let me respond to that perspective. I I have the same battle inside myself this week as I'm reading and praying and preparing. You might be saying, uh, isn't Jesus the one that went in and, and, and flipped over the tables? I mean, can you imagine this is covered with money and covered a bunch of stuff and I just throw the table and throw all the stuff? Grab the music stands and start throwing them? 
We'd need to turn the camera off if I did that, right? Jesus did that. So the critic out there, you might be saying, okay, so gentle and lowly is honoring Jesus, teaching about himself. How does this go together? And not only that, that part, Mike, but what about the language he uses when he hits up the pastors of the day in the first century, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Bible guys, the guys who knew the Bible the best. You see the words he uses to call them, what he, what he calls them? It wasn't very gentle and lowly. Yes, that's true. Jesus is not always and only operating from words of meekness. But here's the important distinction, church. When he overturns the tables in his father's house in the worship setting, it was because there was opposition, clear, egregious opposition to the Father. When he uses this, these, these words that we might not want to use speaking to the religious leaders, it is because they are 100% opposed to him and to grace and to what the word of God is actually teaching. But if we come over here to how Jesus speaks to the prostitute, to the tax collector, to the sinner, to the Christ follower, that is you and me. He doesn't speak that way. He doesn't throw over the, ter the tables in my heart or your heart as a Christ follower. He doesn't throw over the tables and the music stands in the heart of the woman caught in adultery. He is gentle and lowly with sinners and sufferers and Christ followers. He gets upset with those who distort the gospel and his father's teaching and they turn a place of worship into the Galleria. That's when he uses that kind of language and action. But when we talk about who he is in his heart and how he interacts with sinners, with broken people, with Christ followers, it is in a gentle and lowly way. And we are called to be like him. And our blessing in our lives this Christmas season has nothing to do with the COVID cloud and the implications that have come with it and the restrictions and the frustrations and the illnesses that have come with it. Our blessing has to do with God working in us to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek, to be gentle and lowly of spirit. That's who inherits the earth. God make Mike increasingly meek and gentle. Make me like Christ. This is what blessing looks like. Meek is the one and only thing that scripture tells us about the actual heart of of Jesus, that is his heart, the man who walked on the earth during his public ministry for three years. 
I don't know what time it is, but I think I spent too much time on that first verse, which is my general tendency. So let me pick it up a little bit and move to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You want to be filled up. We need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we'll talk in a moment about what righteousness is. Um, But I I skipped over my third point. And for those of you who are note takers, let me just summarize, going back to where I was. Uh, God's blessing this Christmas season flows from your longing to be gentle, meek, and lowly of heart. That's point number three. Now we're moving on to verse five. I've already moved there, but now I'm moving there again. So verse five. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A good thing to ask ourselves here as we come to verse 5 is, what are you hungering for? What are you desiring? What, when you woke up this morning, what did you spiritually, what did you look forward to? What did you desire? What what, What are the hungers and thirsts within you when you got up this morning and looked at your day ahead of you today? Now, if you got into Matthew chapter 5, and you weren't just reading it, but you were, you were digesting it, you were internalizing it, you were praying it, and you came to verse 6, your hunger and thirst would shift from bacon and eggs, or from watching football this afternoon, or, or for, for whatever thing that might be good that you might be doing, and God may have changed your heart to say, oh, I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What I'm trying to get at, church, is most of us, including myself, do not wake up most mornings hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God's blessing in our lives comes to those who long to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's talk about what this righteousness is that we should be hungering and thirsting for. And it is so good when we do hunger and thirst for it. Now, again, words have a variety of meanings. And this word righteousness, if you've been around Cornerstone or been around churches like Cornerstone, you probably have a primary meaning for this word righteousness. If you've heard lots of good Pauline biblical teaching, that's not actually the meaning for righteousness here. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a verse you've heard many times here on Sunday mornings. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. That is worth 10 sermons right there. That first half of that verse. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. There's this exchange when we are born again, when we're made new, when we believe that Jesus died and rose and and he comes into us by the power of his Holy Spirit. We become righteous in his eyes. We're declared not only not guilty, but the righteousness of Christ becomes our own. And that's the way maybe if you've been listening to gospel preaching for many years, the way you would think of righteousness. And that is how Paul often uses the word righteousness or righteous. But that's not how it's used here in verse 6. 
It is better to take this righteousness to understand the meaning of the word here to mean personal righteousness or our own holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for their own personal holiness, their own personal righteousness. So how in the world do we hunger and thirst for that? I'm just guessing that you are like me. And the first thing when you start your day out is not hungering and thirsting for your own holiness, your own righteousness. So we're getting somewhere now. We're discovering when we read the Bible, we're not just looking for information. We're looking to be changed. The Bible isn't written to make us smart like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who knew and memorized all these things. That's not what the Bible's for. It is there to change us. And so a careful reading of verse six, the reader will go, yeah, that's not what I hunger and thirst for. God help me to hunger and thirst for this. We naturally desire and hunger and thirst for the wrong things. But here's the good news. God can change your desires. He can change your hungers and your thirsts. And many of you have experienced that and have experienced it much more than I have. And we could have a lot of testimonies about how God changes hungers and desires. Because that's when we really start to become Christ-like is when our desires and our hungers and, and our natural inclinations become virtuous, become God-honoring instead of the default settings that are in us, which are basically all about me. I hunger and thirst naturally for my own self. Not my neighbor, not God, not my own righteousness and holiness and sanctification. I don't wake up hungering that I would be gentle and lowly. So how do we get there? How do we get there? It, of course, takes a work of the Holy Spirit. But let me give you an example of how, how God can change our desires, not in the spiritual realm. Let me just give you a, a desire in another, in another realm. So I don't know if I've mentioned to you that I like mountain biking. Have I mentioned that? So let me tell you a little bit about the journey of how I've come to love mountain biking so much. When we first moved to the foothills in 1998, I, I went for my first couple mountain bike rides with, with a neighbor and, and with another a friend from church. And my acute memory of a, several of the first rides I did were just pure misery. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Like, I, I get on this bike and I am with this guy and we are climbing from the bottom of this canyon to the top about a thousand feet. And my heart is going and my lungs are trying to work and they're not working. And my legs are burning. And I'm saying to myself, this is like fun. This is what people like to do. It was bringing back memories of coaches who worked me way too hard or from a PE teacher that made us run in such a way where you just, anybody know what I'm talking about? That's how I felt. I hated it. 
It was it was terrible feeling. But what happens? Well, I started to ride some more and see, well, well, he's actually enjoying this. I'm not. And you get to a place of fitness. And now I can actually ride with him without being miserable. Well, now I can ride without him and I actually enjoy this. And, 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 and I actually love this. And so I've moved from this desire to get away from this person and get off this bike to now I, I love to go and climb up a mountain on my bike. My desires completely changed to the point where we go somewhere where it's flat, like Newport Beach. And I'm like, where's the hill to climb? Like I start to think and look and yearn for the hill to climb. I'm missing it. I've gone from hating this thing to loving this thing. God can do that in you and me spiritually. So that when we wake up in the morning, as we become more and more like Christ, we can actually desire to be poor in spirit. We can actually desire to mourn. We can actually desire to be meek, gentle, and lowly. And we can actually desire personal holiness to be like our God, to be different, holy, pure, right, noble, all of these things. So God's blessing this Christmas season flows from your longing for personal holiness. That's number four. And we're getting near the end here. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his classic work on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes this. He identifies what our desires and our default settings are. He says, he writes this. He says, we put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire. And thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. What are we seeking? We are not seeking blessing. We are seeking to be poor in spirit. We are seeking to mourn. We are seeking to be gentle and lowly, to be meek. We are seeking to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as by God's grace, we seek these things, which happen in large part by his grace through the means, through the disciplines of reading scripture and praying and fellowship and a whole variety of other things. And blessing comes. Are you seeing church how radically different God's blessing in our lives, how radically different blessing in the kingdom of God is than, than blessing in our world. God's blessing this Christmas season begins with a radical change of the objects for which you hunger and thirst. What are you hungering and thirsting for? One of the things we are to hunger and thirst for is our own holiness, our own personal righteousness. We've covered four of the eight Beatitudes, half of this symphony, if you will. We will cover a few more these next few weeks as I pray for myself and for you that we would have a blessed Christmas 2020. 
blessed according to the principles of the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount. Let's bow our heads and pray together and ask him to change us. Lord, there are so many self-focused ways that we seek blessing. And when we look at your word, God, we see something so radically different. Help us to be more impacted by your word and the truths within it than the truths, the, the so-called truths that our culture preaches about what it means to be blessed. Lord, many of us have all kinds of challenges with this year 2020. We have challenges in the relationships in our families that have been exacerbated and made challenging because of COVID. Some of us here today have actually had COVID. Most of us here know someone who's tested positive or been impacted in a major way, even death by COVID. Our kids are not in school. Many of them, we wish that they were in school and experiencing sports and a variety of things that they're not experiencing. Lord, we do desire a restoration of these things. But Lord, I pray this morning that we would see that we do not need to wait for the COVID cloud to lift to be blessed by you. Help us to long for the things that you've shown us to long for. And might we receive your blessing by your grace as we seek these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.